Good morning. It's going to be extremely hard to follow that song. All of those are some of my favorite songs, and I picked them out earlier this week not knowing what was going to transpire. And I'm glad that God chose me to pick some of those songs over some others that I wanted to do instead. And it's difficult sometimes to continue on when life throws such disturbing events. I mean, not disturbing, but they're hard to handle events at us. But we have faith in one who tells us, who is revealed to us, what is going to happen. And we can rejoice that Lori is no longer in pain and can stand before her Savior. Or she chooses as well at times to bow and worship him. And one day, that is available for any of you who is a child of God. Amen. And don't feel ashamed if anyone needs to get one of these as well. I'm sure there are some throughout the sanctuary, but I certainly know I'm going to need mine. So there are different times. I like reading different stories, seeing different events play out. And something I always like to look for in those can what be described as the turning point moment. Or in English majors or literary majors is what they like to refer to as the climax of the story. That peak event where you know that everything is going to be resolved. We may not be sure how, but we know it will be. Whether the hero triumphs or not, in a way, they already have once they reach that point of the story. We can see this not only in just stories in literature, but oftentimes the way sports play out for us. There's that turning point moment we can look for, that one particular play. It may not be the winning play of the game, but we can see that's the point where that particular drive changed, where the whole event of the game changed the momentum. Some of these we might remember such wonderful occasions as when Russell Wilson threw a pass that was tipped and he managed to catch it himself for his own touchdown. <laughs> I'm not sure any other quarterback can make the claim of they threw a touchdown reception to themselves. <laughs> and that, or maybe Odell Beckham Jr. catching a pass one-handed behind his back and doing a front flip over someone, although he did get tackled out, out of bounds. but. We can see these points where the momentum has changed. Something has changed. It's a turning point in the game. And that's one in sports. In movies, especially war movies, it always seems to be that rousing speech right before the command comes out, fix bayonets and charge. And sometimes they win that particular battle. Sometimes they lose. But in that speech, in that moment, they have won something in their, in their hearts, in their souls, that's changed the outcome. And in history, we can see these events play out. And if we were to look at the Civil War, we could think of particular battles. Perhaps the Battle of Gettysburg, which historians cite as the particular moment that the Confederacy lost the war. But in the grand scheme of that particular conflict, it is the events that come afterward 
that are more striking. When President Abraham Lincoln delivered his remarks at the Gettysburg Address, and he followed up with his shortened speech after one of the particular orators went on for two hours. I am fairly certain I'm not going two hours today. But in which he redefined or reinterpreted the words of our Declaration of Independence, of the Constitution, recognizing how at times we have failed to carry those out and rededicated our nation to the ideal of all men are created equal. And by the grace of God, we would have a government that works for the people, not the other way around. And that is a turning point in both the Civil War and the way our country treated its citizens. And from that moment, we can see how different movements came about, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, where because of the words of Lincoln in that turning point moment, we came to realize that those truths in the Declaration of Independence, the rights of the Constitution, were guaranteed for all, not just for a select few. These are some turning point moments in history. Today, we're going to be looking at another one of these turning point moments. And one, if I were to ask you what some of the turning point moments of scripture are, this might be one of the ones that you would likely turn to. And this moment comes to us in Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15. And this is Joshua's final address to the children of Israel. And in the second of two, the first one he gave in chapter 23, to the assembly, basically marked his retirement. He had presided over as the leader of Israel for many, many years after Moses. And now this final one, he issues them a stark challenge. And chapter 24 is so loaded with so many different ways we can see how God has fulfilled his promises to the children of Israel and challenges. But at the height of his speech, he comes to these two verses, the turning point in his oration, in his admonition of them to choose God. And here we see in Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15, these words. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord and if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers who served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Throughout his speech, throughout his oration, throughout his final challenge to the children of Israel, and especially in these two verses, we can see that Joshua is using many ways to convince them, many ways to try to make, have them make the right choice to serve the Lord. And through this, we're going to see three different times that he is going to remind them. He is going to give them a remembrance of certain events, certain 
relationships, certain things that they need to remember. And then he's going to issue them a challenge. And the first one we're going to see comes to us from these first two words. Now, therefore. And in which he gives them a remembrance, a reminder of their history, their relationship with God. And we're going to have to refer back to the prior two chapter, this chapter and the chapter before because he reminds them throughout those, these two chapters of all that God has done for them. Not all-inclusive list, but some of the biggest highlights. And we're not going to cover all these verses, but for some of your benefit, the first thing, the first reminder of, well, the reminder within the reminder of their relationship with God, of what God has done for them, is Joshua reminds them that the Lord fought for them and he tells them this in Joshua 23, 3 through 5, 23, 9 through 10, 24, 6 through 8, and 24, 11 through 12. But out of these, we're just going to select one of these verses. In Joshua 23, verse 3, there it is told, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all the nations because of you, for the Lord your God is he who fought for you. Even in contemporary history, as we look back on the nation of Israel, they're not recorded as being a particularly military power of the area. In that time, you had two powers. One in, the modern, in modern Iraq, the Babylonian Empire, and one in Egypt, the Egyptian Empire and several smaller kingdoms throughout. Israel was a very minor player. It's not particularly known for its culture. Most anthropologists and archaeologists assert that after Israel came and, came and conquered the Promised Land, that what they would define as culturally significant art, literature, had declined. They were not chosen for their art, for their military might, but they were chosen for aspects that we will see later. But they did not come in conquest. They did not possess the land that they have now before them through any of their own merit, but because the Lord their God fought for them. This is the first reminder within the reminder of their history. The next one we see is that the Lord provided for them in a material aspect. And we can see this in 23, 15, 24, 3 through 5, and 24, 13. And in each of these, it goes on more of specifically within Joshua's lifetime in the conquest, but it also includes such events as providing manna in the wilderness, providing quail in the wilderness, when their disobedience brought snakes upon them, a relief if they would only look upon the bronze serpent that Moses had set up as God commanded. But in these particular verses that I've provided for you, I want us to look at 24, verse 13. I have given you a land which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and the olive groves of which you did not plant. Joshua is reminding them that what they have and what they possess is not of their own doing, 
but it's solely because God has given it to them. The next reminder of their history is the Lord reveals what will please him. Now this one might seem a little odd. How is telling them what will please God a reminder? Well, consider some of the relationships that other countries had with their gods in that day. And for those of you that have seen The Chosen, there's a particular scene at the beginning of an episode which very much shows some of this, where you have Jacob and his sons digging a well. He becomes one of the local Canaanites, inquiring why he was digging a well there. And Jacob goes on to explain how his God told him he was, his grandfather told him how he was going to travel to a faraway land that he did not own, and he would be given an inheritance here. He asked what the name of this God is. And to which Jacob replies, he doesn't exactly have a name, but they call him the God Most High. Ask where his temple is. He doesn't have one. Ask what carbon image of him they possess. He doesn't have one. To which the Canaanite man responds, so you worship a God who has no temple, who has no image, who has no name, that told you to pack up everything and move to a foreign land. And you chose this God. To which Jacob responds, we did not choose him. He chose us. He reveals to them in his relationship what will please him. Unlike the other gods of the Canaanites, where they had to guess, is this the correct number of cattle I sacrifice so Baal will give me rain? Or that I can stave off moat coming up and killing my crops? It wasn't some guesstimate, some arbitrary rules that didn't make sense, but he clearly defined what will please him. In these two chapters, he tells us in 23.6, verse 8, verse 11, and verses 14 through 15. And we're going to look at two of these in particular. In Joshua 23, verse 6, there it is recorded. Therefore, be courageous and keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from the right hand or the left. He tells them in his law what will please him. Moreover, in verse 8, therefore, take heed, sorry, therefore, take careful heed that you yourselves, that you love the Lord your God. Oh, sorry, I wrote a different one there, didn't I? <laughs> sorry. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Actually, both of those verses work, which is why I guess I include them both in the list. There, God tells them what will please him. And if you could probably guess the next logical remembrance that God tells them is what will displease him, which has a similar number of verses. 20, 23, verses 6 through 7. 12 through 13, and verse 16. And once again, the best example of that comes to us from verse 6, where the law that you give to Moses reveals what will please him and what will displease him. And then the last remembrance of what God has done for them. The Lord tells them, the Lord reveals and provides for them 
spiritually. And once again, 23, 6, and verses 14 through 16. Tell us very much that this law not only tells us what will please God, what will displease God, but it provides for your spiritual well-being. And that's something that the gods of the Canaanites did not provide. They didn't particularly care whether or not you were a good moral person. They, as far as their priests were concerned, they really only cared that you offered the appropriate sacrifices, said the appropriate words at the appropriate appointed events, and by and large really did not care what you did. You could certainly annoy them, but they didn't particularly care if you did stuff that pleased them. God, by contrast, provided them a law which told them what was right, what was wrong, how to treat your neighbor, how to love your neighbor, and how to love God. This is the first remembrance that we get from the, those two words. Now, therefore. The next reminder that we're going to see come three words further in, where, we are, where he tells them to fear the Lord. And this particular remembrance is how they are to relate to God how they are to have a relationship with God. And before we go and in, dive into this one, I'm going to ask a little rhetorical question, which anyone but Tony probably doesn't know who this is because I kind of gave this away to him. How many people are familiar with a man named Salva Kerr? Probably none of you. I deliberately picked that man because he's one that we probably have no idea who he is. He is, in fact, the leader of South Sudan. He has been their more or less president for life since its founding. But you have, when I bring him up, no relationship really pops up because you have no particular reason to fear this man. For one, just like the, in contrast to the Lord, you have no idea who he is. So to first, in order to pay respect to him, you would have to know who he is, just like for us when it comes to the Lord. To fear the Lord, first, we must know the Lord. Not only must we know the Lord, we must respect the Lord. Well, now you know who the leader of South Sudan is, maybe while you're in his country, you might speak in proper reverence as, a pro, as awarded to a leader of a nation. But here, you're not under such obligation. Your respect for him is very different. For the Lord, if you know him, then you're also called to respect him. And then you must also, to fear the Lord, you must revere the Lord. Not only respect his authority, his power, but give proper reverence as one who has a relationship with them. And one of the best examples of this comes to us from Deuteronomy. 10 verse 12, and there it is recorded. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord of your God and to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And there in that particular verse in Deuteronomy, it reveals how we are to feel the fear the Lord, much along the lines of those three exact little bullet points I gave you earlier. 
you must know him. You must respect him and revere him. Or as the law of Moses writes out, to walk in his ways, to love him and to serve him. In those three words, Joshua reminded the children of Israel of so much meaning. The last remembrance that we are going to see actually dives into almost the rest of the first half of this verse. I mean, this, almost the rest of this first verse in which Joshua tells them to serve him in sincerity and in truth and to put away the gods of their fathers and of, the, and of Egypt. This is a remembrance of how to serve God. And it comes not only with the command, with the remembrance to serve, the God, to serve God, but instruction there. First which, in sincerity and in truth. Sincerity being a definition of which, to serve him with your entire being. And truth could also be genuine, trustworthy, to be found without deceit in your relationship to God and how you are to serve him. And also from the chosen, when Jesus was speaking to the children, not the children of Israel, but literal children, one of the first things he asked them was, did they know the, know the Shema, which comes to us from Deuteronomy 6, which in that particular passage encapsulates our relationship with God, with others. And it starts off, I believe, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And it's called the Shema because... In Hebrew, it literally begins, Shema O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They tend to refer to verses by their beginning in Hebrew. And in continuing on, in verse 6 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, there it says, And these words, which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your houses, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Now, is this to be taken literally? Should I now tattoo these on the back of my hands? Perhaps I should write the words on a little scroll, put them in a little box, and tie them on my forehead? Should I write them on the doorpost of my house and upon my gate? That's certainly one interpretation of it. Or should we be known that when people see us, because of our testimony, there goes one who the word of God is upon his lips, upon his children, that when I approach the house, say, a brother Dana, I don't need the words written on his doorposts. I know that when I am entering into his house, I'm entering into the house of a man, of a family of God. Are we known here just simply as the church that exists in Kettle Falls, that building where people gather at on Sunday? Or when people see our church, because of your testimony, your witness. Do they know that this church, when they enter, is a house of God because of your testimony, 
because you wear his words upon you, because you taught your children, because when they see your countenance, the way you act, it's as if God's word is written on a scroll that you wear on your forehead. That is the standard to serve him in sincerity and in truth. Then we come to the next particular command of how to serve him, in which he tells us to put away the God, the false gods. And I deliberately left off when I began this, the particular location of which Joshua chose to give this address. Beforehand, he gave it more or less at the regional capital in 23 that they established after they conquered the Promised Land. Now he has called them to a place called Shechem. Now this might be because Joshua is quite old at this point, and that's about as far as his particular journey can take him. But there is some significance, very deep significance, to this particular place that he gives this command, that he reminds them to put away the false gods. In Joshua 24, verse 1, if we were to go back to the beginning of this chapter, there it says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. That's particular verse I pulled up now is just to highlight that they were indeed called to Shechem, where Joshua is now giving this address. And for those of us who are taking part in the reading a chap four chapters of the Bible each day to work through it through a year, we have already made it through this particular passage. In Joshua twelve, verses I'm sorry, not Joshua, Genesis twelve, verses six through seven, where there it is recorded, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the Terebith tree of Moriah, and in the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared before him. So somewhere between four and six hundred years ago, Abraham, when he arrived in the land of Israel, this is the first spot he pitched his tent in Shechem, and God once again repeated his promise that this land that you now see before you, your descendants will, now, will one day possess. And Joshua, anywhere from four to 600 years later, is speaking to now those numerous descendants where at the point that Abraham came to land, he had no descendants, and now he has innumerable number of descendants, now possessing the land in the very spot that God made that promise to him. The people, the children of Israel, would have seen the significance of this place. Perhaps even that altar still stood somewhere nearby. And once again, this place pops up in Genesis 35, verses 2 through 4. And there it says, And Jacob said to his household, and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in my day of distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hands and their earrings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them 
under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Very literally, that altar, that tree, maybe before them at this point, where at one time God promised Abraham numerous descendants and possession of the land, which had come true. And now they're in the place where Jacob forsook all other gods and buried them under a tree. And now Joshua, in this very same place, is calling upon them to do the same. And moreover, if we were to skip ahead, we would see in Joshua 24, verses 26 through 27, that they did accept this challenge that was laid before them and chose to follow through. And there it is recorded. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up under the tree that was to be by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness for us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord. He spoke to you. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. In this final remembrance of this particular oration that he gives before them, he reminds them of how they are to serve the Lord. And then the lastly, we see that three times now in this passage, he is going to give them a command, give them a choice, and give them a challenge from the words, serve the Lord. And the first time, he implores them to serve the Lord because of what the Lord has done for them. And we covered much of that in the now therefore, in the fear of the Lord, in how they are to relate to God and to serve him in how they are to do it. But now comes the command. Because of all that he has said before, they are to serve the Lord. But he follows it up with a choice. In verse 15, and if it seems evil for them to serve the Lord, choose to serve some other God. And this is a challenge that we will see pop up again and again throughout Scripture. And a choice that must be made. It is not, well, I choose to serve A and B. Your choice is to serve A or B. You can serve some. And Jesus reiterates this particular point of Scripture. In Luke 16, verse 13, there Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he hates one and loves the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now certainly there are times where the will of two masters may overlap on a particular point. And we can make justification, well, I can do both because they both agree on this particular area. Maybe it has to do with charity. Maybe it has to do with governance. Maybe it has to do with helping out my neighbor. But one day there is going to be that divide. One day there is going to pop up a choice that you're going to have to decide. My action is going to please one and hurt the other. How do you react in that day? And this is where Joshua delivers the final. His 
challenge. Where we see Joshua's stance, where he reveals, you may all choose to do the, do the former, to serve the gods that were beyond the river Jordan in the land where Abraham once dwelt, or the god of the Egyptians, or the gods of the Amorites, who we had just conquered their land. But even if you do so, he answers with the words, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is not particularly unique in this regard. We can see many other people in scripture made this particular choice as well. In also very extraordinary circumstances, when Joshua made this decision, he had seen the faithfulness of God. He is one of only two living people at that point in history who had seen all the miracles of Egypt. He alone, besides Caleb, were chosen out of their generation because while everyone else saw the might of the Canaanites when the 12 spies went in, they all feared. They called them giants. And from accounts in Joshua, we can see that one of their kings had a 14-foot long bed that they very well were giants. They were afraid, and they thought that God had led them to the slaughter. Alone, Caleb and Joshua proclaimed, yes, there are giants in that land, but the Lord our God will fight for us. So he was spared death in the wilderness like everyone else of his generation. And even such great figures as Moses, their, their leader, and Aaron, the first high priest, were not given the honor that Joshua was and Caleb was in coming into the promised land. He had to make hard decisions in his life. And at this point in their history, they had conquered the promised land. That might have been an easier decision for them to make, but some people made the decision to serve God in very extremely taxing circumstances and times. One of them comes to us from Ruth, verses, chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. And there Naomi is imploring Ruth to return to her people. And there Naomi says, and she said, look to your sister-in-law, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. That was a very brave and terrifying decision for her. For she was hated in the land of Israel by most because she was a Moabite. She abandoned her gods, her people, her family, to follow after Ruth. That was a very brave and difficult decision on her part. Likewise, another group of people who had to make a similar decision are the three friends of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, when commanded to bow down to the golden image and worship or be thrown into the fiery furnace, his three friends, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, answer a king who was well known by contemporary history for being a very, very vengeful and angry man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, for that is the case. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us 
from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That again is a very brave thing that they had done. They had everything to lose, a very painful death that would have been awaiting for them. But they chose to serve God when all others did not. And then the la one of the last ones we see comes not as the example of doing the right thing, but of one who made a poor decision. And this comes to us from John 19, verses 10 through 11. And in this particular passage, Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate is beginning to fear the crowds that are demanding the death of Jesus. And he's becoming even more frustrated because Jesus won't answer him. He is annoyed at Jesus because of the perceived slight of Pilate's authority. And there, in, starting in verse 10, it says, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. When Pilate faced a similar event, when he was coming before one who he knew had authority, he chose instead to side with Rome, to decide with his own position, the threat to his power, the threat that he would be declared a traitor to Rome, one who did not give proper authority to Caesar. He had the chance to make the right decision, to do the right thing that he knew was true under the law, that Jesus was an innocent man, but he chose to condemn him. He made the wrong, he made the wrong choice. So once again, from these particular passages, we can see how Joshua reminds them of what God has done in their past, of how they are to have a proper relationship with the Lord, how they should serve him, but follows up with his command, his challenge, and a choice of how to serve the Lord. And this is a challenge many of us are going to have made. Many of us are going to see our particular choices questioned in the future. And right now, we live in an anomaly within history. We think times may be particularly bad right now. And relative to how we're used to life playing out, that certainly may be true. But unique within history is we have a particular set of laws that, when they are followed correctly, protect our rights to worship. That don't say this particular church is the correct church and all others are not, as enforced by the government. We, there have been times in history's past where you have particular churches persecuting other churches. We don't yet have that here. Times At this time right now, it is particularly easy to choose God because we have not faced the persecution that Christians have faced throughout history. I hope we never see those days, but they may likely yet come. So now it is particularly easy in many ways to say, I serve the Lord. But don't be surprised when the day comes, because in God's word it tells us 
that days will come when we will be persecuted, when we'll, we will be hated, when we will be brought before the leaders to testify in his name. Wait, where'd that? <laughs> Sorry, got a little sidetracked. <laughs> and he tells us in Second Corinthians, did I have this particular verse written down? Nope. Okay, sorry. I have it written down for my benefit. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, there it says, In an acceptable time I heard you. Behold, the, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time, and now is the day of salvation. And in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, there it says, For our boasting is in this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have conducted ourselves in this world in simplicity, in godly sincerity, not with the fleshly wisdom, by the, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. The day is fast approaching, where it's not going to be easy to choose God, where the world is going to put pressures on you. But first you must know the Lord. And today, if you do not know the Lord, I ask that you re-examine your life. You may be thinking that you don't need him, that Master A can save me, or Master B provides something that is a little more too difficult. Well, certainly Master A can deliver a whole lot. He can make you rich. He can give you wealth, power, relationships. Certainly a lot of people have profited over serving something other than God. But what they promise and what they can deliver in this lifetime cannot save you in the next. For Romans tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Regardless of what master you serve, you are in need of saving. Regardless of what you believe, we are all condemned. And Romans also tells us, for the wages of sin is death. For our condemnation, for the actions not only Adam, but our own individual sins. God has been cut out of our lives. We are disfigured humans. This is not how we are supposed to be when God created us. But because of God withdrawing his presence from humanity, that's how we ended up in the situation we are at now. But that same verse in Romans also continues. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you choose to have a relationship with him, when you choose to serve him, because he promises you that because of what he did 2,000 years ago on that cross, his shed blood, that he can restore you to the humanity that we were meant to be, the relationship we were supposed to have with God, that through our own failing, through our own screw-ups, had been damaged. You can choose this day not only to serve him, but to become a child of his. Because while the world promises you wealth, glory, relationships, what God promises you is the only relationship that matters. A relationship with his son. A relationship of restoration. And one that we may stand before the throne of God where we no longer face the pains of this earth, the pains of this life, our physical ailments are gone because we stand with the one who is perfect. 
it'd be my greatest hope for all of you that at the very, that you choose God and that like Joshua you can make that bold declaration that when all others forsake God when all others turn away and when everything is difficult when the choice is hard you may choose to serve those other gods those gods of Egypt the gods beyond the river Jordan be like Joshua but as for me and my house we shall serve the Lord amen amen